Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many wonderful gifts you've given to us, and we thank you especially for uh, sending your son Jesus to be born and then to die on the cross for our sins, Lord. And we ask you to take these gifts that we've given back to you, Lord, to use it to promote your gospel here in Grand Rapids and then throughout the whole uh, world, Lord. And we just ask you to uh, open our hearts and minds to hear what uh, the message that Pastor Dale has to bring for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bible this morning with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, that's near the end of your New Testament. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 25. Verses 1 through 25. We're looking at the question, why did God become man? And here we um, have one of the answers to that, questions, to that question uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's pick it up at verse 1. Let's read through verse 25. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my, law on, my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So far the reading of God's word this morning. As you know, Christmas time is a time that's famous for a time for making wishes. Uh, boys and girls, uh, one of the things that you miss out on, uh, having been born too late, is uh, you miss out on the joy of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. <clears throat> uh, when I was uh, just a little guy, uh, that was uh, that was the 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 first sign that Christmas was was near. Uh, when the Sears and Roebuck catalog came out, uh, they called it the Wish Book, I think, back then, and that's exactly what it was. And I remember um, me and my my twin brother. Um, laying down on the floor and busting open those pages and start looking for um, life, basically, what, what would actually bring lasting happiness. And our, we were looking for a presence that uh, would, would both satisfy that insatiable longing that every kid feels, right, when you open a, a catalog full of toys, toys and things that were affordable. So when I mean, we saw the, the electric racetracks with electric cars, you know, things like that, um, we would love to have a racetrack, but it was some outrageous dollar amount, like $50. And uh, that was for maybe the Rockefellers, right? We were, we were not going to get a $50 uh, electric racetrack. But there, there were these, these cool um, six-pack guns with holsters, and you could even get chaps and a cowboy hat um, for like, it was like $15. That was on the upper end of things, but we had hope. And so we would circle those things, you see, that were possible, um, and, and then we would give that to the folks uh, just to encourage them in their, uh, their Christmas spirit. <laughs> and boys and girls, I'm sure you have your own, your own variation of that. You have ways of uh, identifying the things that would be uh, really meaningful to you. If your parents really love you and want to express that, right, you have uh, ideas of ways that they could, you, they could do that. And maybe you've given them some lists uh, just to in, encourage them. Well, my question for all of us, little boys and girls and big boys and girls, is uh, what is your wish book uh, this year when it comes to uh, the things of God, when it comes to your, uh, your spiritual life? If, if you could actually have uh, whatever you would, you would want, what would you want to ask God for this Christmas? And I might at least don't just take that as a rhetorical question, but think about that. What would, what would you want to ask God for this Christmas, if, if you could have anything. Uh, because, of course, there's no limitations uh, for God. What, what would it be? Maybe for some of you it would be a healed uh, relationship that's just been on your heart. Uh, maybe for some of you it would be help in a real financial uh, trial situation. Uh, for some of you, maybe it would be um, a, if you could just really know that you're forgiven. There's a, a past sin or a pattern of sin that's haunting you, and uh, it would be almost um, wonderful beyond belief if you could have the absolute confidence that, that you were forgiven and that God loved you. I remember uh, talking to someone uh, once, and he just said very honestly, I wish I could believe that God deeply loved me. I think that would transform my life, and I think that's exactly right. Because one of the things I, th I think that most of us lack is a deep, deep, life-transforming assurance and confidence about 
our relationship with God and, and, and what he's actually accomplished and what that, that means for us every single day, that we never have to be afraid, uh, that we, we don't have to bear the, the weight of guilt and shame. We don't have to, we don't have to um, question if the Father delights in us. We don't have to wonder about our future, either our future in this life or for sure, the life to come. Uh, what would it be that you'd want to ask God for? And if, if the things that you'd want to ask God for this morning deal with that, those issues, the issues of, of confidence and, and deep, bold assurance and the joy and the peace and the purity that flow from those things, then Christmas is for you. Because Jesus Christ came precisely to give us those deepest longings. If the Holy Spirit is within you, those are the things that he is longing for in your life. And Jesus Christ came to give us exactly those things, that deep, deep confidence and joy and peace in assurance that we have been loved with an everlasting love by God himself, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Jesus became man. And this is why the letter to the, uh, the, the called the, the, the Hebrews, this book of Hebrews, is written. We don't know exactly who wrote it, it's, it, it, but it's written for confidence. It's written for assurance. It's written so that God's people may um, be full of joy and peace in believing. If you'd ask, what is this book about, the book of Hebrews? Well, the answer to that question is it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus as the, the greater Moses, the Jesus who has come to enact a better covenant and who, who offered a better sacrifice, which has vastly better benefits. It's about Jesus. But if you ask, what is the book for? What's its intent? What's its, what's its goal, its purpose? Its purpose is the deep joy and confidence of believers. It's written so that we can have absolute assurance, deep, unshakable assurance in, in who we are and whose we are and, and what God's disposition is towards us. And so if you just, let me just quickly run through some of these verses. Uh, Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 7.25, he is able, Jesus is able to save forever. The, the language is just magnificent. It's big language. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In full assurance of of faith, not just a hope, not a wish, a conviction, a confidence. Well, how are we going to get that? Well, we're going to get it the way that the readers, uh, the initial audience here would, would get it, because this, the writer here is writing to people who are discouraged. You, you see that coming throughout the book. Uh, life as a Christian is hard. They're being persecuted. Uh, they're, they're, they're wondering why they left the comfort and the security of their life as as. Uh, in the Jewish community. They've been kicked out of the Jewish community. And they're having their homes confiscated. 
Uh, they're, they're, they're economically bereft. Uh, these, the, it, it's difficult to live this life. And, and so these people need to be reminded again of the great privileges and the confidence they can have as the children of God to draw near to God and find in God everything they need for life. So let's follow that same path. This morning we're going to look at why did Jesus come? First the mission and then the means and then the miracle. The mission and the means and the miracle. Uh, the mission is clearly for us in our text. I have come to do your will. If you want to know what made Jesus tick, that's it. In John chapter 6, 38, I came to do the will. I did not come to do my own will. I came to do the will of the one who sent me. He came to do the will of the Father. What the Father desired, what the Father purposed, what the Father intended, that was the roadmap for Jesus. That was the playbook. That was the thing he followed. That was the thing he desired. He didn't do it begrudgingly. That was his passion. That was his food. And so Jesus Christ has come to do the will of God. And the, one of the things that the writer of the, uh, of the book of Hebrews does here is he, is he highlights the beauty of the work of Jesus by contrasting it with the Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrifices and, and ceremonies and services. If you, the whole uh, book really is taken up with that. If you look at the first part of chapter 10 here, he's talking about the shadow, uh, the law, that's the Old Testament uh, ceremonial system, that was a shadow of the good things to come. It was not the true form of the realities. And so the, high, the, the priests would get up and they would make their sacrifices. Every day, twice a day, every single day, there would be sacrifices offered in the morning and in the evening. And then you would have annual uh, celebrations and, and sacrifices where the blood would flow as, as, as bulls and, and goats and sheep are slaughtered. Uh, the blood is everywhere and the blood is being sprinkled everywhere. And what the writer in Hebrew says is what those things did was they reminded people of sin, but they couldn't remove the sin. It was just another reminder that, that, that man is uh, born into a, on the wrong side of the law. And that the great crisis of humanity is the reality of our sinful status by virtue of being the children of Adam. That nobody comes into this world... Uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a descendant of Adam and Eve without sin, a sin nature, and without being on the wrong side of the law. The writer here is just reminding us that the whole Old Testament was given to, to speak this truth that, that we are born as a, as a race and we live as a race in this crisis of judgment, this crisis of sin, and the fact that God is a holy God and he will respond to it. We, uh, we are born alienated from God. Now, I know that's language that's familiar to you. And, and the truth is that when you hear that language, you can even, uh, and I sense it in my own self as I'm saying it, we can sort of go dull and go into just overdrive in our minds. We've heard it before, but we don't really catch the crisis, the truth of the crisis. It's language to us. The, the, the truth is that this morning when you came into church, if I asked you, what's on your heart today? And if you're honest, what have you been thinking about and worrying about this week? Almost none of you would have said, I don't think, that uh, what's really been on my heart this week, what's, what I've been worrying about, what I've been thinking about, spending time reflecting over, 
the, the critical issue in my life today is how can I be made right with God? Now, part of that is because we believe we have been made right with God. But what about, what about the plight of your neighbors? What about the plight of family members who don't know God? I mean, do we, do we have a sense that the, the, the crisis of humanity is a crisis of the fact that we are, because of sin, alienated from God and that there's a judgment day rapidly approaching 60 seconds every minute? You see, the world's crises are, they're, they're not, they're not, it's not that they're not significant. It's just that they pale. So if you look at the headlines and the things that people are worrying about, people are worrying about wars and ISIS and economic uh, data and political maneuverings, and everybody's talking about those things. If you were paying attention this week, they're Reports coming out of Paris concerning this international agreement regarding uh, climate change. And leaders are um, congratulating each other on this historic achievement. Uh, they, they, um, they speak as though they've, they've taken a huge step here to save the world from the effects of uh, climate change. Whatever you might think about all of that, so what? In, some, in a profound sense... Because it's not, the, it's not the greatest crisis facing mankind. Even if this, this agreement is addressing a real problem, and even if this agreement is, is able to solve that problem, what, what can men do to solve the crisis of sin and judgment? What conference are you going to hold for that? What agreement are you going to reach between national leaders? What policy are you, are you going to put together? The whole world getting together. What, what are you going to do if you can unite everyone in the world? What, are you, what policy are you going to put in place to reconcile men to God? And to save people from an eternity of judgment and wrath that God promises is going to come on those who are not reconciled to him. What, what can man do? And of course the answer is there's absolutely nothing he can do. There's absolutely nothing whatsoever he can do. But that's why Christmas is so beautiful, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, appears on the scene. So Hebrews 10.5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, that changes everything. Because now there's a someone who can answer the crises. Christ came into the world, and he came into the world to resolve the human crises, and to do that through his own body. I've come to do your will, O God. You see, we need to see Jesus as God's direct response to the real crisis of humanity. I think too often in our, in our uh, thinking about Jesus, he sort of floats ethereally in our consciousness, uh, removed from the, the real stuff of our life. We can, we can come to believe in a Jesus that's sort of the Sunday school action figure. But you see, the, the Scripture never presents Jesus that way. He's, he's never a nice story. He's never a religious message. He's never an encouraging idea. The Jesus that we find in Scripture is, is real, tangible, physical, and coming to rescue us in our crisis of judgment. That's why he came. I use this illustration um, for the funeral of Elliot, and, and I think it, 
it sort of captures how the Bible wants us to think about Jesus. So, you know, if, 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 if I'm trapped in the upper room of a building that's burning all around me, and you tell me there's a man coming down the street. Don't tell me miscellaneous things about him. Don't tell me about his hobbies. I don't need to know about his kids. I don't want to really care. I don't care about the color of his hair. Maybe for some other time, those uh, miscellaneous things might be interesting. But, but right now, in the burning house, the one thing I want to know is, is this man a fireman? It's all that really matters to me. And if he's a fireman, then tell me about that. Tell me about the long ladder that he's carrying on his back that he's going to throw up to the window and help me down. Tell me about the great strength in his stride. Tell me about the settled determination in his face and the calm confidence in his eyes. Tell me about all that he is for me in my crises. That's what I need to know. Well, that's how we need to think of Jesus. He hasn't come to make our existence more palatable on this earth, more comfortable. Jesus Christ came to rescue people like you and me from the crisis of judgment. And those are the things the Bible insists on telling us about because those are the things we need to know. He came to rescue man from the great overwhelming crisis of his existence. How can we be saved? Jeremiah chapter 8, I think, that. It, you have this plaintive cry from Jeremiah, the summer is ended, the harvest is done, and we are not saved. That's the crisis. How are we going to avoid the devastating judgment that we actually deserve because of who we are and what we've done? And the message of Christmas is that God has responded to our need. He sent a man down the street. His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the mission, I have come to do your will, O God, and the means then of accomplishing that mission, a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. Easy words to, just to gloss over. But the concept of a God, God being eternal, God being immortal, unchangeable, God being spirit, the idea that that God becomes Man, which is finite, physical, mortal, able to die. Putting those two together, those two categories together, has confounded the minds of theologians and, and philosophers and saints. Uh, it was particularly a troubling uh, concept to the early church as their culture sort of just assumed, embraced uh, a dualistic worldview where things that belong to the spirit world are pure, are real, and things that belong to the material world, things of matter, are somehow shadows of the real. They're imperfect. They're, some would go to so, so far as to say that there's, there's just evil inherent in matter itself. And so the idea of God becoming man, the word becoming flesh, was just not acceptable. And so there were many in the church who taught that Jesus didn't really become a man. He, he took on the appearance of man. He was indwelt, uh, or, or he was a man indwelt in some way by God. God. God came and inhabited the person of Jesus and then left. But the idea of, of Jesus being really truly God and really truly man, and as the God-man suffering and dying on a cross, it was, it was just too much. And so they tried to find ways around 
that concept. Well, the gospel goes right straight into the middle of it. It's exactly what Jesus says, a body you have prepared for me. He existed before his body was prepared for him. And when his body was prepared for him, Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, also becomes fully man. And as the God-man, he comes to our rescue. So Paul says in Colossians 2.9, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Somatikos is the word there for bodily. Physical, material, corporeal. You can pinch it. You can, you can touch it. You can, you can feel it. It's real. A body you've prepared for me. Why? Well, because well, it takes a real body, you see, to, to offer a sacrifice. When Jesus says, behold, I've come to do your will, what that means is I've come to be a sacrifice for sin. I've come to offer my body. If you look at verse 10 in our text, that by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, the, the, the apostles never back away from Jesus, the Son of God, offering his body as a sacrifice. They've seen sacrifices. They've seen the priest take the neck of, take the head of the sheep and pull that head back. They've seen the knife come under the neck and the throat slit so the blood flows everywhere. They've seen it a thousand times. They know what they're talking about. And they never apologize for it. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The sacrifice of Jesus' body, you see, as corporeal, real, tangible, physical. That's what they want to hold before us. They, they, they never try to sanitize it. They want us to see the, the actual body of Jesus Christ as the means for our salvation. You see, the, the reason that the, the Bible insists on the corporeal, real, tangible, physical person and body of Jesus on that cross is because our, our, our crisis is tangible and corporeal and real. Death is corporeal and real. The, the, the curse of God on sin is that you die physically, and if you are without Christ, you die spiritually as well. The problem is truly goes all the way to the marrow of our bones. Pain and suffering and loss are corporeal and real. They're not figments of your imagination. When you, when you uh, lose your health, when you lose the things that are precious to you, when you lose... Um, physical abilities, and, and when you lose your life, that, 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 those were real things. We, we had a funeral, December 2, for Elie Vidra. And don't, don't chatter on about Jesus, the, the good example, and Jesus, the sort of the life coach, when you got an eight-year-old girl in a casket. Because the, the, the need is corporeal. The need is tangible. The need is physical. It's real. And, and if, if, if the gospel can't touch those things. Let's just pack it in. Let's not waste our time with niceties about religious concepts and, and, and sort of uplifting ideas. We, we, need, we need something that's going to meet us in the reality of our need. We need flesh and blood rescue for flesh and blood people and for a flesh and blood crisis. The body, you see, was necessary. Sin cannot just be forgiven. You hear people complain about, I don't understand, why couldn't God just forgive sin? 
to, to say that means you don't understand the reality of God. You don't understand the reality of sin. For God to for just, just forgive sin, you see, is not for God to forgive anything. It's for God to condone sin. It's for God to give his stamp of approval on sin. For God to say, don't worry about it. There's a song by the, I think the Oak Ridge Boys. Horrible. I mentioned it before, but I just get this thing stuck in my mind. My misspent youth, I used to listen to them, and they... Um, we talk about judgment day, and, and, and the chorus goes, and he said, come on in. You did the best that you could do. So a little bit of right in every wrong. There's a little bit of me and you. He, being God, said, come on in. It's awful heresy, and yet it's exactly what people would like to believe. Well, it's just not true. It's just not true. A, you did not do the best that you could do. B, it's positively horrifying to say there's a little bit of right in every wrong. What, what in the world does that mean? And it utterly ignores the reality of God and the reality of sin. God cannot just forgive. It must be atoned for. Guilt has to be paid for. Unrighteousness has to be be removed. Stain must be cleansed. It has to be that way for God to remain God. Because, you see, for God just to say, come on in, I'll, I'll just forgive you slash I'll just condone your sin means that your heaven actually becomes hell. Because your heaven is populated people who don't love God, who don't love righteousness, who are committed to their own ways and have never been changed. It's just so critical. So what Jesus, you see, came to accomplish by his body is the actual rescue and transformation of sinners. By atoning for the guilt and offering a righteousness that can freely clothe us, not because of anything we've done. So you have then this, the miracle. By that will we have been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Isn't that beautiful? Again in verse 14. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. Let me just quickly go through those, that, that text. By one offering, the offering of his body on the cross. For all time. He has perfected past tense, completed act, perfected those who come to him in faith. And it's for all time. You see, the work of Christ will never be diminished. The blood will never lose its power. The verdict will never be reversed. There's now no condemnation. Not now, not tomorrow, not a hundred years from now, not when the world ends and you stand before God, the judgment throne, not when eternity has run on for a thousand years. Christ has perfected You, if you are in him forever and ever and ever. But notice it says those who are being sanctified. Christ has perfected for all time, not just people who've tritely uh, said a prayer, or or people who have intentions of, of religious things and profess some sort of faith in God, but for those who actually have experienced the power of the gospel and are experiencing it as an ongoing thing. Notice the the shift in tense, those who are being sanctified. But it's such good news, you see. What it tells us is that the power that is able to perfect you for all time, you are justified, declared righteous before God, robed in the innocence of Jesus Christ, the power that was able to to perfect you uh, positionally before the Father, before the law, that power is at work. To transform you. It's the same power. So Jesus Christ has accomplished not just your justification, he is accomplishing your sanctification. The power that raised him from the dead is the power that's more and more making you into his likeness. 
That's what Jesus came to do. He came to rescue us. And the assurance we have is that God promises it. Verses 16. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds so that you have a desire to do the will of God. You want to do the will of God. You hunger for it. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Friends, that's what God wants you to know. That's what Jesus Christ came to accomplish. That you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be under this constant blanket of shame and guilt and failure. Jesus Christ has made all of that the past. You are today perfected. You are today loved. As as the Father has loved His Son, that same love is now for you. Piper says this, the blood of Christ so completely covers our sin and removes our guilt that the conscience can be at peace. Not because we're sinless, not because the conscience doesn't sometimes accuse us, but when it does, we by faith speak to it and we say, I know I have sinned. It grieves me. I hate my sin, but I have a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He shed his precious blood for me to bear my sins and cover my transgressions. Therefore, be silent, O conscience. Be at peace in Jesus. Do you want great assurance, assurance that makes you bold, assurance that is able to purify you so that you can say no to besetting sins, an assurance that teaches you to love and to be patient and to be gracious and kind and, and thankful and godly, It's what God came to give you in Jesus. It's what Christmas is for. For those of you this morning who do not yet believe in this Christ, I just hope that somehow the Holy Spirit is communicating to you the great danger you are in without him. Judgment day is approaching. You are in the burning building. And your time may be very short. If you have not confessed your sin, if you have not turned to Jesus Christ and trusted in what he has done and what he alone can do to rescue you from hell, then you are still lost. And my invitation and Christ's invitation is come. Come to the waters. Come to life. And for those of us who are discouraged this morning and we're tired and the way is hard and and our sins seem overwhelming, uh, receive the message of Christmas that God sent his son Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came. To do the will of God, and the will of God is that you would be saved. The will of God is that you would be given to Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ would raise you up on the last day, and that everything you need in this life you have in Jesus Christ. Justified by faith alone, not because of anything you've done. Sanctified by the power of God. That all the promises of God are, to, are yes to you in Jesus Christ, and that you have every reason for full assurance. Because Jesus gave his body for yours. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for his willingness to come and be our sacrifice. And that by that sacrifice, by the real, tangible, actual, objective fact of his death, offering his body on the cross, the objective fact of our sin has been answered. And the objective truth of our crisis has been averted. And it is objectively true that we are now by faith children of the Father and heirs of everlasting life, forgiven. So that the life that we live in in the flesh, we can live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave his life for us. 
Father, we want that assurance. We want that assurance, that conviction, that confidence in a way that changes our desires, changes what we daydream about, changes what we hunger for and what we pursue in this world. That assurance, Lord, that gives us a great love for Jesus Christ and a love for other people. That gives us a longing for our eternal home and makes us fruitful in this world as we wait for our King. Lord God, grant those things. This Christmas, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to have the elders come forward as we come to the table of the Lord this morning.